Rory McIlroy says this driving is his weapon because that doesn't come and go. Putting, you can have a hot streak, you can have a cold streak. You hit it 20 yards further, you hit it 20 yards further round after round after round. It doesn't, it doesn't come and go. So it's worth a lot. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Mental Golf Show. As always, I'm your host, Josh Nichols. And on today's episode, we've got Mark Brody, part two. If you haven't heard part one, it was released last week. We talked about what golf analytics is, why is it valuable for us to even care about stats, how adjusting your aim helps you save strokes, what stats and analytics does for confidence, can knowing your stats actually hurt your game, and more. Highly recommend going back and listening to that one. And on this part two of two, we're going to be talking about how Mark Brody spends his practice time, what he learned from watching Luke Donald practice, how to quantify the mental game, how good is Mark Brody's mental game, and is uh, is there a statistical change under pressure, how much does distance really matter, and a great explanation of strokes gained towards the end, and of course, much more than that. But before we get into this episode, I want to tell you about the custom weekly practice plan. If you're interested in practicing better and practicing the way that I did to get good enough to make it to the finals of a USJ championship, then you need a custom weekly practice plan. Here's how it goes. You give me your stats or your assessment of your driving, approach shots, short game, and putting, and you tell me when you can typically practice and play, and also the resources that you have. Maybe you have a uh, just a, a putting mat in your basement, or you have a, a whole simulator set up with a, with a GC quad, or you have a uh, multi-million dollar facility that you can go to every day for eight hours. You let me know all that stuff, and I will hand-build you a practice plan and send it to you in PDF form, as well as a customizable template with practice challenges. You will get a fully filled out week of practice down to the minute, which you can use week after week and work on your game in a systematic way. This is exactly the way that I did it uh, when I was at the peak of my game. Go to joshnicholsgolf.com slash practice dash plan, or go to the link in the show notes to learn more and purchase your practice plan. And if you feel like you need one-on-one work on your mental game, that's what I do. Yes, I host this podcast and I build practice plans, but my actual occupation is working with players all over the world on their golf psychology. If you like the topics that I cover with guests like today or my Golf Thursday episodes, this is the exact type of stuff that I work on with players. So if you'd like to take the next step to improve your mental game, then send an email to mentalgolfshow at gmail.com or visit my website, joshnicholsgolf.com. Or if you'd like a less formal intro to mental coaching, where you don't have to spend any money or talk to me, you could take the mental game assessment. It's a 15-minute questionnaire that'll give you your mental strengths and your biggest area for mental improvement. It's a great resource. It's the same resource that I use with my players to start working on your mental game. And the best part is, it is free. The link to everything that I've mentioned will be in the show notes of this episode. All right, let's get into it with Mark Brody. We're going to pick right up where we left off talking about how Mark Brody would spend his practice time. So buckle up. Hope you enjoy. If you had that hour or if you took four hours uh, away from playing and spent it practicing, 
how, would you like, how detailed would you get with your structure? Would you say, okay, 30 minutes is going to be spent working on this specific part. And then what specific part, uh, uh how, like, how would you break up your practice? Or I, I'm assuming like you're a very analytical person. So, uh, would you, would you break it down to the minute like that? Or would you just go in with kind of a general knowledge of low hanging fruits, that kind of thing? So for me, when I record my stats and all of a sudden I, I take a look and I said, oh, oh, this is, you know, my 100 yards, you know, wedge shots are much worse than I thought. Then I'll, then I'll go get a lesson or my, you know, 20 yard chip shots. I'll go get a lesson. There are so many players that want to get better, but don't go for a lesson to get an independent set of eyes. You can look at lots of tips on the internet, but you're not quite sure what what is what applies to my game, especially when one tip is for a different kind of player, you get in a contradictory thing. So I think having an independent set of eyes and very few players that get lessons would get putting lessons or short game lessons. A lot of it is, you know, driver seven iron on, on swing lessons on on the range. So I would highly recommend people Think about getting a putting lesson. Think about getting a short game lesson. Think about lessons in, in, in general. And it can, yeah, it can just be a huge help. And it's true. The number one way for 90 golfers to improve, if I don't know anything about you, just in general is 150 yard approach shot. And I'd say, okay, maybe 100 to 175, but if you got to pick a number, 150 yard, that's the biggest. Uh, area for improvement or the low-hanging fruit. On the other hand, maybe that doesn't happen overnight, but maybe you're pulling your three-foot putts, and that could be an area for you that is the quickest way to drop the most shots from your score. So gaining 20 yards of distance, long-term, that's going to be great, but that's a long-term kind of thing. Short-term, Putting or learning how to get out of the bunker in one shot can be uh, a great a great value. Yeah, if you know your stats and it says you lose three, four, five shots around two chipping or something yeah. like you're not yeah. getting on the green on your first chip, you should probably work on that. That's yeah. a pretty low hanging fruit. Yeah, I spent a day with with Luke Donald in part to see how did he practice and. With his coach at the time, Pat Goss, they had mapped out in the off season for, you know, six weeks, say, how many shots he was going to hit in, in this week and how many hours he was going to do that. So he was working on a swing change and he wanted to get X thousand shots in with that, with that swing change. Wow. But it was interesting. Here is the best putter in the world on the PGA tour. And he spent out of, say, six hours practice two hours of practicing his putting yeah here's the best putter in the world spending two hours practicing his putting and it's like i know people that don't spend hardly any time let alone don't get a lesson he's spending two hours and then that two hours is structured part of it is on with training aids so you know a lot of different putting training aids so working on technique so out of that two hours, think of 30 minutes as working on uh, technique. And then he would spend uh, 
time doing drills. So like if you're worrying on working on distance control, there's something called a ladder drill where you you hit one putt to 10 feet and there's another ball out of 20 feet. And how many putts can you get that go further than the last ball, but not beyond 20 feet? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so all sorts of different kind of drills like that, uh, that he'd work on circle drills that, you know, hitting it from different sides of the hole. And then he would finish uh, with a, uh, with a challenge, you know, nine or 18 hole challenge where he's counting the total number of putts. And if he doesn't get, you know, a certain point score, he's got to do it again kind of thing. So it, it counts and there's pressure and it's more like, you know, read once hit, hit it once more like it's, it's out on the course. So not only was the amount of time spent on putting an eye opener, but the way he structured that time, I think is, uh, a good lesson for for all of us that you know part of what you want to do is improve your technique part of what you want to do is improve your feel and touch and part of what you want to do is make it game like in your in your practice right and and i and that seems unrelatable but i think it's even more important for the average golfer who works a 9 to 5 job who has a limited amount of time how much more important it is to structure your limited amount of time, right? And some of that you can do at home, especially if it's putting, right? You can work on some technique things at, at home. You don't have to, you know, travel to the course and only do it there. Right. Yeah. So so I think it's I think it's really, really valuable to look across your entire week or look across how much time you have and grab little bits and pieces here, but then systematize it and make it really, really high quality and valuable. Take that from Luke Donald and try to make it as relatable as possible, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, don't, I don't remember if I uh, sent this question to you, but I, I think it's, it's one that kind of came to me, and it's, it's about quantifying the mental game. And this is something that I'm not sure there's a great way to do it. I didn't know if you've ever come across something that was along these lines of of tracking your mental game improvement or quantifying it in some kind of statistical way. I don't is that something that you've ever come across? So a couple thoughts. One is I've sure. thought quite a bit about can you measure the value of a swing coach? And the answer is it's not easy. And for, for various reasons, which if you want to spend five minutes, I can go into that. It's, it's not easy. So quantifying the value of the mental game, I think is even tougher. Um, but, uh, interested to your reaction to this, this, uh, at the senior players championship, Bernard Longer was asked this question about, uh, whether golf was 90% mental. And he gave what I thought was the obvious answer, but I've never heard uh, a tour pro say this. He goes, if you say that golf is 90% mental, I say you have no IQ, (laughs) zero IQ. I'm sorry. (laughs) If you put two players together with the same level of technique and experience and capability, then it becomes very much more mental because what's going to differentiate players that are almost of equal ability which is, you know, him against players on uh, the champion's tour, yeah. his peers, it sort of makes sense. But he goes, 
if I played you tomorrow, I don't know how good you are, but it doesn't matter. You could have the best mental game in the world and you're not going to beat me. <laughs> and I could have, I could be on the champion tour and have the worst mental game and I'm going to beat you every single time. If you have that much difference in ability, the mental game is not going to make up for that difference. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's, that's true. Um, mm -hmm. I, I believe that. Well, and another way to say this is I think that you can't use a good mental game to will a 20 foot putt into the hole. It's just not possible. There's too many imperfections on the green. You could take a true roller or mechanical putter that hits the perfect putt and it's not going to go in 100% of the time. Hey guys, Josh here. Just want to pop in and tell you about an awesome new sponsor of the show, the Divot Board, the game-changing golf training aid designed to elevate your swing and revolutionize your game. Whether you're a beginner teeing off for the first time or an elite player striving for perfection, the Divot Board is your ultimate partner for achieving a consistent and effective golf swing. What sets the Divot Board apart is its patented technology that offers instant feedback, both at home and on the range. With every swing, you gain valuable insights into the crucial point of impact, as well as your swing path, enabling you to make real-time adjustments. It's really just like a divot. This means you'll fine-tune your technique right on the spot, leading to greater consistency and improved ball contact. One of the most important parts of quality practice is instant feedback, and nothing does that like the divot board. It really is just like a real divot. What's truly remarkable is the flexibility the divot board brings to your practice. Whether you're honing your skills with a golf ball or simply focusing on your swing mechanics, the divot board accommodates both preferences. It's your portable golf coach, always ready to provide guidance, whether you're indoors or outdoors. Mike at the divot board was kind enough to send me one, and I personally use mine in my backyard to hit foam golf balls, and it's really cool. I had a little project where I built a hitting platform with a custom cutout sized exactly for the divot board. It's been an awesome way to be able to get quality practice with real feedback without even leaving the house. And with having a one-year-old and running my own business, take it from me, this has honestly been great for my mental and physical health, as well as my golf game. The Divot Board has a genuine turf feel, giving you an authentic golf experience each time you use it. No matter where you are or what your skill level is, this training aid will undoubtedly help you build the confidence and skill you need to excel on the course. And to top it all off, the Divot Board is running an awesome fall sale right now. Now through November 30th, you can get a Divot Board for just $99. That's $40 off the full price. To upgrade your practice and get your Divot Board, go to divotboard.com slash mentalgolfshow and use the discount code mentalgolf10, the number 1010, mentalgolf10 at checkout to get an additional 10% off your purchase or go to the link in the show notes of this episode. Again, that's divotboard.com slash mentalgolfshow and use the offer code mentalgolf10 at checkout to get 10% off. That will bring your Divot Board all the way down to just $90. Don't wait. Go grab it now. Many thanks to Divot Board for partnering with The Mental Golf Show. All right, let's get back to the episode. On the other hand, I think a bad mental game can ruin your score. That it's so easy. So I don't think a good mental game can 
turn you into Bernard Longer. But a bad metal game can easily turn a 90 shooter into a 100 shooter, or a 110 shooter, whatever, that you can let bad shots or a bad metal process or whatever get to you. And then one bad shot leads to a worse shot, leads to a worse shot, leads to a worse shot. So I think the metal game is hugely important, even if you can't measure it. Mm. Um, but taken in, in the right context. And the last thing, you know, I spent some time with uh, Lynn Marriott and P. Nielsen, and they do this with players at their golf school. And I know other players uh, on the PGA Tour and, and elsewhere will have like a mental scorecard. So in our golf metrics app, there is an option after you hit a shot and you're recording, okay, I was uh, 30 feet away on this putt and I hit it to, to two feet. There's an option to have to rate that your mental, your, your mental uh, process on a one to five scale. And then afterwards, if you, if you're religious about doing that diligent, I should say about doing that, then you can see, Oh, if my mental score was a two, does that lead to worse? Putt? And, and how is my mental approach improving? So if you're good at self-reporting, which is hard, if you're good, then you can track your own mental game and then correlate that to your success on the course. Uh, so I think in some ways that's, you know, the best device that I, that I could give as opposed to I can't quote some study that's going to measure this and say it's worth some quantifiable amount. But I think players can, can use it. And if you don't want to use a one to five scorecard, you can make it, you know, five, I was in a good mental state, one, I was in a bad, and you just make it a, a binary scale. And I think, you know, many people will uh, benefit from that and just kind of looking after the fact uh, off the sure. course, how many times was I really mentally prepared for that shot, and how many times wasn't. And it's tough, right? To be mentally prepared for 90 shots, is, is not that easy. And if you can bring that level of mental preparation up, I believe that it would help most people's scores. Yeah, I think that's as good of an answer as, as, it, as possible for a quantification of it. In the same way, you wouldn't ask a normal person on the street, how would you, like, could you quantify your anxiety or something, right? It would, it would be a totally subjective I feel better today or I feel worse today or I I think I feel better than you. I don't know how you feel. So it's it's not it's not on an even playing field to say there's a benchmark to rate yourself against. It's just not um it's an unfair question that I think you answered really really well, but the closest you can get to quantifying it is it attached to something that is quantifiable. So yep. trying your best to be consistent with your self-reporting and attach it to and correlate it to, okay, what's my actual performance with my physical statistics? I think that's pretty well said. Thank you. Um, going back again to uh, uh, the, the Ryder Cup, and yeah. uh, it's it's been in the news. You might know her. I do not. Uh, Julie Elion is a mm. mental coach or performance coach for Justin Thomas, Wyndham Clark, Max Homa. Wow. And Justin Thomas goes, you have to work on what's going on between your ears, just like I do my yardages with my wedges. So I can't quantify the value that a mental or performance coach brings to Justin Thomas, Wyndham Clark. But if they're using it and they think it's helping them out, I would listen to them. <laughs> they're the best players in the world. 
they're probably not only good at their how they hit their shots. They're probably good about their nutrition, their practice, and watching them for clues as to what they're doing. And I would believe if Justin Thomas says, this mental coach really helped my game, I'd believe him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like I said, even if I can't quantify that, I, I, can, I can make, you know, I can see what's going on. And if they think there's value, I would think uh, amateurs would, would gain some benefit as well. Yeah, for sure. Even if it's only self-reported and you can, for your own self, say, I feel better. I believe that I lost fewer stro- uh, strokes today because I had a better mental game. There's no other measurement necessary. That's good enough. So with, um, with yourself, how, how do you, cause if you're getting to play, you know, semi regularly, how do you feel about your own mental game? That's super broad. I know, but how do you feel about how your mental process is on a, on the course? Uh, it, it definitely differs whether I'm trying to shoot for a score or I'm trying to have fun. So, um, I think in terms of like using statistics, one thing that, that hit me after a year of recording, uh, my stats is one particular par three. I was always in between clubs and I tended to say, Oh, I'll hit a hard eight rather than a soft nine. And then I looked at the end of the year and instead of my shot pattern being centered around the middle of the green, it was centered around the front edge of the green. Hmm. And I was missing like half the shot short. And it's like, Hmm. It's like somebody taking a, a hammer and hitting me with a head. How could you be so stupid and and basically be hitting the hard nine instead of the the softer eight and coming up short half the time? It, that by itself showed to me the value of recording your stats. Mm. And it was an easy par three, and my scoring average was was awful because of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the other thing I noticed is. I was just far too aggressive with recovery shots Hmm. and just, you know, seeing an opening there and realizing after the fact that I just take on too, too much risk. And that's, you know, sort of a tough struggle and it's been a long time coming. And, um, uh, but, but it's easy, it's easy to see when, when you record that, you can go back and look and say, oh, wow, I'm just <laughs> take, taking on too much risk and, and figuring that out. So it, it definitely it definitely helps. Uh, we were also talking earlier about, you know, a bad shot for amateurs can lead to more bad shots because you just get down on yourself. It's just, oh, man, I, you know, what's the point? And, uh, and in the, um, the Solheim Cup, I don't know if you, you saw last week, but uh, – Carlotta Saganda was um, one up against Nelly Corda after 14 holes. She was one up. 15th hole, she sank the shot into a bush, double bogey. The match is now tied. Thanks. Cold, thank, double bogey, whatever. The match is tied. She goes to the 16th hole, and this was after, I guess, uh, talking to. Um, uh, Suzanne Pedersen, who said, you know, something like, mm-hmm. uh, is this what you wanted? Go for this. It's all yours. 16th hole, she hit a wedge shot to three feet when Corda was already in at five feet. Corda missed, she made to go one up after the 16th hole. 
the 17th hole, she hit a seven iron to three feet. She won the match two up in that one, the Solheim Cup. So she went from a shank to stuffing it two holes in, the, in a row and winning a match. And I can't think of sort of a better example of being able to put that bad shot away and just take, you know, take on what, what's, what's coming in the, in the future. The, mm. you know, the old one shot at a time, but, but hard, easier said than done, but she, she managed to do it. And you, you look at that and say, what would an amateur have done after that tank? Right. <laughs> it wouldn't have been pretty and they wouldn't have won the Solheim cup probably. <laughs> right. So, uh, that, that's a great example and a semi quantification of the value of the mental game. Uh, and, and maybe we'll save the value of a swing coach for another time. That sounds really interesting, <laughs> but, uh, I, I asked for some listener questions, um, and we won't get to get to many of them, but, uh, one that stuck out to me, um, one person, uh, on Twitter said, not sure if data exists at this level, but are there any big differences between how players perform in casual rounds versus competition? And is, is pressure more of an issue off the tee approach, et cetera. So I guess the question is for, if you were to take out the really good players or whatever, um, can it, is there a clear statistical difference? Uh, and I'm not sure if golf metrics allows, allows you to put type of round in there, but is there a difference statistically between casual and competitive? Yeah, I think it, it sort of goes, goes both ways. And this, this, topic came up in a discussion with this app called cat patrol so you're kind of looking at uh sandbaggers and can you detect sandbagging that's a good name um and in uh talking to to some players i think it cuts both ways there are some probably you know better golfers that score better in tournaments because they're actually focusing and sure. trying to shoot a score versus practicing where it just doesn't matter so that it can be because of the stakes involved players play differently and some players actually learn how to control their mental state and focus much better and play smarter shots you know put it all together and you you can score better under higher pressure situations i would think most golfers go the opposite way that most score worth under pressure. And part of that is, is comfort in, in the situation. Many players that I play with, we're playing better ball matches where if you're, if you're out of the hole, you pick up and, you know, you pick up a 10 footer, you pick up a five footer. It's not very often that you have a, a tricky three footer that you actually put them all out. And so I'd say most players score, score worse simply because they're not used to hitting every sh single shot and getting into the hole. And all of a sudden, well, if I, if for my handicap purposes, the double bogey max, you know, they're going to, they're going to pick up. Whereas you see in, in tournaments, somebody shooting 10, 11, 12 on a par five that they'd never shoot before. Yeah. Because they would pick up mm. before they'd ever, ever get to that score. Yeah. So I think it's, um, you know, pressure kind of, kind of cuts both ways and it's, yeah, it is hard to measure. But the other thing I'd say is my, I, my guess, not as a scientist or whatever, just, but as a casual observer is that, um, yips and things like that affect 
are more affected with smaller strokes. So you can get the yips putting. Yeah, you can shank full shots and you can do some things full shots, but it seems much more prevalent with the shorter shots where the smaller muscles are involved than, than the big muscles. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've seen that more, uh, in my own experience working with players. Um, so if that's, if that's the case and most players revert down in their skill level when there's pressure, is there a way that you would think to work on that? Maybe it's put everything out when in a yeah. casual round. I mean, is it, it, or should we just resign ourselves and accept that fact? Or, or do you think there's a way to, to improve it? No, I think they should they should come to you and uh, figure out about putting <laughs> everything out and the, the whole idea of having a consistent routine. Mm-hmm. I think is is good advice and it's hard uh, uh, hard to implement, but it's good advice as far as drills. I think there's um, a couple of drills. One is worst ball and one is one is best ball. Mm-hmm. And in worst ball, you hit two shots and you play the worst. Then you hit two shots from there and you play the worst. And that is so hard and you yeah. get to practice tough shots you get to practice trying to make a score when you're behind the eight ball over and over again so in terms of building resilience putting yourself in pressure situations that's a nice drill to do this this worth ball uh worth ball golf but i'd also pair that with best ball golf where you hit two shots off the tee you play the best you hit two shots from there you play the best that i would look as a confidence builder, just a way to build confidence, realizing you're going to practice to learn that you can go low yourself. You're not bringing a pro in for some shots. It's you hitting every single one of those shots. And if you could just be a little bit more consistent or a lot more consistent, um, you get comfortable, realize, oh, I really have that low score in me. The potential is there. But it also is good to um, get practice making birdies, mm. get comfortable making birdies. So besides best ball, the other thing I would, uh, I would recommend, and I've definitely been doing this myself, is play from the most forward tees. Instead of playing 6,800 yards, whatever, this is going to be 5,500, fine. Play from there. See if you can break 70. If you can't break 70 or 75 or 80, whatever sort of, you know, your target is, start every hole in front of the forward tees. See it up 50 yards ahead of that. Mm-hmm. It's fun because you're playing a different course. you got to think about strategy a little bit differently. You're playing different shots on those holes than you're used to. But it is eye-opening um, how hard it is, even on a short course, to break par, right? Yeah. You think of... Uh, you think of par three courses as being easy. Well, most, most players birdie the par five, not the par threes. So, yeah. Um, they're the hardest you, holes are the par threes. Yeah. The hardest Typical. holes are the par, par threes. They, they can be, but, but it's so much fun when you're playing, uh, you know, a 450 yard par five and you go, Oh wow. I just birdied that hole or I came, you know, I hit it in two or something. It's so much fun. So I say, you know, worst ball to build resilience, best ball to build confidence or playing, playing up tees. Yeah. I love that worst ball. And I'm a generally kind of masochistic, like make your practice hard so that competition feels easy. But I I do like that in building resilience. And if you're constantly, like you said, put behind the eight ball or you're constantly uncomfortable, 
then when you get into a tournament and you start to feel uncomfortable, oh, I've been here before, I've, I've done this a lot, or I've at least done it once, right? I'm not totally jumping in the deep end. So I like that. Uh, and, and one other question, and then, and then we'll kind of hit the home stretch. Uh, someone asked, and this, this is a pro golfer. I know this guy. Uh, he said, how much does distance really matter? That's obviously been a huge hot topic over the last five to 10 years, maybe for forever, but like, especially five to 10 years, does, does distance have that much of an impact for all range of golfers? Uh, or is it only for the higher end of golfers? How much does distance distance really matter? Uh, distance matters a ton, and it matters more for ninety golfers than for pros. Okay. Um, in terms of absolute score, sure. Um, maybe not relative score. So for pros, the way I try and explain it is, you got to think in terms of fractions of a shot. If a pro hits this tee shot twenty yards further. That gains about a tenth of a stroke. Ah, geez, that's not much. Tenth of a stroke. But if you do that 14 times around, you're now 1.4 strokes better. So a tenth times 14, you're 1.4 strokes better. You say, ah, yeah, but if I hit it 20 yards further, I'm not going to hit as many fairways. In the PGA Tour, if you're at the bottom of driving accuracy, you're hitting about one less fairway per round than average. That costs a lot. Three tenths of a shot is going to cost you. If you move that ball from the fairway into the rough, cost them about three tenths, which is three times the tenth that you're picking up. So missing accuracy is important, but you want to compare the 1.4 stroke gain with the 0.3 stroke loss of accuracy because you're not losing that on every hole. You're not missing every fairway now. You're missing one out of you know 14 more than before. Mm. So that gets you down to about 1.1 strokes. One stroke is about the value of 20 extra yards, including the loss of accuracy. So you've got to be wildly inaccurate for that not to help. And one stroke around for pros, four strokes of tournament, that's, that's huge. You know, Rory, Mac- Rory McIlroy says his driving is his weapon because that doesn't come and go. Putting, you can have a hot streak, you can have a cold streak. You hit it 20 yards further. You hit it 20 yards further round after round after round. It doesn't, it doesn't come and go. So mm-hmm. it's worth a lot. Hmm. So that, first of all, is for pros. For amateurs, it's much more than that. Hmm. You know, at least 50% more, maybe, maybe double. But then there's the knock-on effect. So that includes that 20 extra yards means, okay, some shots, instead of being 180, you're hitting from 160. Or 120 instead of 140. That's where that's where the one shot comes from from your drive. It's not the drive. It's that you're hitting shorter irons that you can then get closer. Mm-hmm. But if you can hit your drive 20 yards further, then that 160 yard shot that you have instead of 180. Well, that 160 yard shot you're maybe using two clubs less, one or two, than you previously were from 160. So that's going to add almost an equal amount of gain because your approach shots are going to get better because you're hitting less clubs from a given distance. So you put those two together and now you're talking about saving three, four or five shots around for a 90 golfer, which what, what else can you do? That's going to save that. You, you don't, you don't three putt eight times around that you can then reduce that to right. <laughs> three times around and gain five shots. 
So it's definitely not easy to to gain 20 yards. You should certainly go for a fitting and get, you know, optimize your launch conditions and your, your the shaft and your driver and all that stuff. Um, but it's it's hugely, hugely important. And I'd say after 150-yard approach shots, driving distance is going to help everybody, but especially, you know, it's going to help amateurs more than pros. Okay, so so short answer to uh, how much does distance really matter? It matters a lot. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> it matters a lot. So you've you've done uh, it all, I guess you could say, with golf and uh, maybe not it all, but you, you've experienced a lot. Like you've, um, like Golf Channel called you the godfather of golf analytics or something like that. Like you've, you've reached a, a really high mountaintop, but where do you go from here? Do you just... Are you just going to be a professor? And I say that like you're just a professor. But is there is there new things that you're trying to do in golf or analytics or like what's what's long term five ten years for Mark Brody? There's you know what I thought was a research paper or two, and then I'd be done is like spiraled into well there's just the more you get into it the more questions you have so I have many more projects and questions that I'm working on now than before. So, huh. um, there's, there's a ton of stuff to do and some of it is using the data we have better. So strokes gain can be improved at the margin in a number of different ways. So we know that an eight foot uphill putt and an eight foot side hill and eight foot downhill putt are not equally difficult. So you can certainly improve on, on those benchmarks. And I've, I've done a fair amount of work uh, in that already. Um, but in the future, we're going to have shot and putt trajectories on every shot. Uh, right now, we have it on a, you know, on, on a few holes. But, but man, can you imagine if we knew uh, whether a player was drawing it or fading it and how they perform in the wind and other things? And now, could you imagine marrying that with kind of physiological data where everybody's wearing a heart rate monitor. Now you can kind of, there you could measure pressure as, you know, what's, what's this uh, player's heart rate and how's that corresponding to uh, the shot that they're taking and what's their, what's their breathing doing. Mm. Uh, that would be, I think, absolutely fascinating to put those kind of data together, the performance data together with the uh, physiological data. So that, uh, that's in the future, but it's, it would be fascinating. Yeah. Right. And there's developments in, you know, EKG monitors that you can have in your hat. And so combining all of that into, oh, also you've got to hit your typical draw into this hole with wind and whatever. And this is what you normally do on this kind of situation. That would be, that would make for some exciting kind of little analytical thing on the TV that said, okay, Justin Thomas has got to hit this shot. This is exactly how he's feeling right now. Yep. That'd be, that'd be really cool. So you're, is that kind of something that you're like trying to help with the PGA tour or uh, golf broadcasts or what do you mean you're working on that? Oh no, I'm not working on that. that. That would be, that would be great. I would work on it if, if that data was available. <laughs> so. Sure. Right. Okay. It, that's just you kind of saying this is, might be a future. Hi, that's the pie in the sky. That's the dream. Gotcha. Kind of. yeah, yeah. Okay. I got you. Okay. Yeah. Well, if there's someone that should work on it, it should be you. But uh, <laughs> anyway, is there somewhere you would 
send people promote? Is there something you would promote or a, a website you'd like to like people to go to or uh, anything like that that you'd send people to? So if people have other questions, uh, I'm on Twitter at Mark Brody or now X, I guess. Um, so that's one way they can get a hold of me in terms of uh, promoting. I, I created the, the golf metrics app so that amateur players would not have to reinvent the wheel. They wouldn't have to use some clunky Excel spreadsheet or write stuff down or whatever. So we tried to make it so it has the easiest, quickest way to input data, get the most relevant, actionable results out. Um, so there's there's other kinds of apps that do that do various things, but this has an ease of use factor that I think is uh, the, is sort of the way it was was designed. The, the graphics and some other stuff are not uh, as as fancy as others, but we also have a major upgrade coming soon that oh, nice. is going to be uh, kind of amazing. I mentioned we also have this uh, mental scorecard feature, but um, I think you've got to be somebody that either is interested in in analytics and and their own game. If you're tracking, if you're already tracking fairway screens and putts. This is easier and 10 times better. Um, whereas if you just want to go out and play and you don't care if you shoot 100 or if you shoot 80 and you just want to have, like some people, their goal is if I birdie one hole in the round, I'll have something to talk about at the bar after the round. <laughs> that's that's different. you know. So many people, I, I understand, don't want to uh, be bothered. And I fully understand that you want to maximize your your enjoyment from the game and if it's going to take away don't don't do it but i imagine uh more of the listeners to this podcast are of the i want to get better variety in which case uh i'd, I'd check it out yeah yeah if they know who mark brody is they probably want to improve their game in some way or they care about analytics in some way so golf metrics is a great uh, i've heard so many good things about it i've used it myself it's it is. It's super easy and super valuable. So yeah, go check that out. The link will be in the show notes uh, for Golf Metrics. Uh, but Mark, this has been a true honor to get to talk to you. This has been extremely insightful. I, I've, I've really enjoyed this time with you. Well, thanks so much for having me, Josh. I wish I had uh, a little bit closer to your golf game than than, uh, than mine. <laughs> I, I've seen some of uh, some of your results and. Hmm. Wow, it's uh, it's impressive. So congrats on that, and also congrats on uh, all that you do for uh, the mental game in golf, too. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. Well, uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Josh. Take care. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with Mark. I really love his best ball, worst ball exercise that he was talking about. Worst ball is something that I recommend to my players as a way to simulate pressure and discomfort so that those feelings are more familiar in tournaments because tournaments are not comfortable. So you got to ready yourself for that. And if you like this episode, you'd probably also like my conversation with Lou Stagner who you probably know from Twitter or X as one of the leading voices in golf analytics and data and using that data to pick better targets and manage your expectations. He and I talked back in February 7th, 2022. We need to get Lou back on the podcast sometime. The episode is titled The Neuroscience of the Mental Game with Lou Stagner. A really awesome conversation that that was. I highly recommend it. 
And as always mentioned at the end of these episodes, what you've heard isn't therapy. It's meant for information and entertainment purposes only. If you feel like you need personal help on some deeper things that you're going through, I encourage you to go talk to a licensed professional. But on the golf psychology front, if you feel like what you've heard doesn't quite cut it and you'd like to work one-on-one with someone, I'm a golf psychology coach. I work with players all over the world on improving their minds so that they can improve their performance on the course. If you'd like to get in touch with me, feel free to send an email to mentalgolfshow at gmail.com or visit my website, joshnicholsgolf.com. And again, if you want to improve the quality of your practice and get the most out of your time, then let me hand build you a custom weekly practice plan. Go to joshnicholsgolf.com slash practice dash plan or visit the link in the show notes to learn more. I also encourage you to go take the mental game assessment. It's a free 15-minute questionnaire where you don't have to talk to me or pay a dime that will give you your mental strengths and areas for improvement. And thanks again to our sponsor, The Divot Board, for supporting The Mental Golf Show. The link to everything that I've mentioned, including how to get a huge discount on your Divot Board, will be in the show notes of this episode. All right, thanks again to everyone who listens to The Mental Golf Show. Whether you're new here or you've been here since day one, I really appreciate the community that you have been a part of building. If you've learned something on this episode, go subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Maybe mention the biggest thing that you've learned listening to the podcast underneath those five stars. And I would love it if you shared this episode with a friend who doesn't track their stats. Simple as that. Stat tracking takes a little effort, but the benefits are so clear. Okay, thanks for listening to The Mental Golf Show. I'm Josh Nichols, and I will catch you guys next time.